Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Typically, I hang up as soon as I know it's going to be a sales call, but this one was different. It was from my alma mater, Azusa Pacific University. They were persuading alumni to update their contact information for a networking book. It sounded harmless enough, so I gave the voice on the other end of the line my details. And as she was inputting the data, she told me about how wonderful it was that I was a special education teacher. And in the very same breath, she exclaimed, isn't it awful how people are trying to put students with disabilities in the same classrooms as everyone else? I immediately responded, sorry to burst your bubble, ma'am, but I am one of those people. So why would someone have a problem with students with disabilities being educated side by side with their non-disabled peers? For those of us who are familiar with the decades of research that support inclusive education and who have experienced success with authentic inclusion, it's easy for us to see that it works. For almost everyone else, though, it appears to be a near impossible concept to grasp. So despite all the research and resources that are available for schools and districts, why are we continuing to fight an outdated mindset over inclusive education. Here is my short answer. The creation of special education services have become synonymous with separate education services. For most of the 20th century, severely disabled family members were institutionalized. Though this has become less acceptable over time, the damage has been done. Just As we had awoken to the realization that people with disabilities deserve an education and a living space, we didn't know how to provide these supports within the context of a broader non-disabled world. So we created separate systems. This wouldn't be so bad if these separate systems had changed to evolve with our culture's attitudes towards civil and disability rights, but that is not the case. Today, we have fragments of pockets 
of schools and communities that do inclusion well. The vast majority of places, however, are either unwilling to implement inclusive practices or lack the knowledge and resources to know where to start. The long answer to this question of why is what we are devoting the podcast to for our seventh season. But hold on, hold on. Isn't special education working, you might ask? Well, it depends on both your expectations and how you define working. The promise of self-contained or segregated special education classrooms and schools do not provide the most benefit for the most children. And this is by no means the fault of the teachers who work in these classrooms. I was one of those teachers, and I'm in the unique position of having taught in a separate classroom for 13 years, and at the same time, promoting inclusive practices. It can be done. Also, there are schools and districts right now that are rejecting the mindset that separate or special is better and educating a wide variety of learners in the same spaces at the same time. Let me quickly share with you my vision for educating students with a wide range of abilities, and you will hear me talk about this throughout the whole season. Imagine there's no special education, nothing special or separate, one educational system that supports all students. Every teacher gets the same training on intervention strategies as every other teacher. Uh, Some states and teacher training centers have already started this dual certification process. And then there's the funding. Instead of special ed funding and general ed funding, there's only education funding. Segregation is over if we want it. Today on the podcast, our first guest of the new season is Lou Brown, co-founder of TASH, an organization that advocates for human rights and inclusion for people with significant disabilities and support needs. He's also the professor emeritus at the University of Wisconsin. We discuss what supports for students with significant disabilities look like before 1975 and the progress that we have made since then. My name is Tim Viegas. We are so glad you are here with us. After a short break, our interview with Lou Brown. Hi, my name is Lou Brown, and you're listening to the Think Inclusive Podcast. One of the things that that people may not know about you is uh, your connection to the disability rights movement. So on, on January 1965, my wife and I and our, our infant son, one-month-old son, moved to Western Carolina Center. And my job, my job there was to do um, uh, diagnostic stuff, which was essentially meaningless. And then I worked on um, uh, a ward with people who are non-ambulatory, and then on another ward with people who are ambulatory, but they couldn't speak, basically couldn't speak. And the job was to do something. Well, one, just one particular ward had uh, 40 ambulatory people that were in one big room all day. 
and and uh, 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 and said, well, what are you going to do? And so we said, well, we got to get him out of this room. We got to break him up. Okay. So I learned a very important lesson. We must increase the number of environments in which people with disabilities function. We must. The, more, the fewer environments, the more problems they have and everybody else has. The second thing is they can't be with each other. You have to heterogeneously group. Homogene the whole field was based on homogeneous grouping. Schools for this, schools for that, classes for this, class for that. And I said, you know, we, we realized that you can't put three kids with autism in one place. You can't put 10 kids with severe physical disabilities in one place. It's just homogeneous grouping has to, had to go. So then in, in the, I was at, then I went to, for a doctoral program at, at Florida State with Jim Sposhi and Ben Allen. And I worked at the Sunland Training Centers around Florida for three years. And it, 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 it was the same thing. What I, what, I, what I did and tried to do at Sunland is the same thing I tried to do with, at Western Carolina Center. You take people, do we have to increase the number of environments in which they're functioning? And then we had to try to teach them something. So in 1969, I moved to Matt, my wife and I, and our, and our young son moved to Madison to the University of Wisconsin. And I remember driving up and we we're talking about, now what are we going to do? We had never, she couldn't find Wisconsin on the map. I I had never been there or heard much about it except for the interview. And so I said, now what are we going to do there? So I remember saying, well, we're just going to have to get out of the institution business. We're just going to have to close them down. Make sure nobody has to go there because they're just, they're just no good for people with disabilities. And the second thing is, of course, the people we worked with at the institutions were considered too disabled to attend the institution school. Uh, so we set up teaching programs for them in bathrooms and hallways and closets. Um, we just got to get them in school. So they all have to go to school. So that, if, you, if you think about that, you think about that, the, some of the principles involved in that closing institution, well, they're essentially closed now. Uh, kids are considered too disabled to go to school. Well, nobody's considered disabled to go to school anymore. Okay, um, and, and, and we, of course, didn't know the people in Pennsylvania or in Massachusetts and Martha Ziegler and Eleanor Elkman and Tom. We didn't know those people then. We were just going our, our, our way uh, independent of uh, what a lot of other, but we were, but we were still a clear minority, right? So, so you think about things, so the, the rules we sort of adopted. One is we must increase the number of environments in which people with significant disabilities function. That's critical. Two, we, we, the environments can't be overloaded. We have to go to a natural distribution. If 1% of the youth, if your definition of a person with a significant intellectual disability is lowest functioning 1% of the population, then no environment should have more than 1% of the people in it who are significantly disabled intellectually. And then no homogeneous grouping. That's a killer. They're, they're the killers. So now, uh, uh, that's sort of how we came about it and involved in it. And we've been sort of involved ever since. Now that it's interesting, I mean these are the these are the things that you outlined in the sixties and the late sixties, and there's it seems to me there's still the things that are the barriers 
to students with disabilities in schools. It, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, they still are, yeah, people are still functioning from a, they're still violating, they're still confining the environments. Correct. They're still uh, um, violating natural distribution and overpopulating certain environments. And uh, they're still homogeneously grouping. Autism is a good example. Autism is a great example. Um, yeah. So, I mean, why do you think that if these are the things that, that we've been working for for so long, why has there been so little progress? Well, let, let me step back a little bit. Sure. Uh, the, first of all, uh, uh, the definition that we sort of adopt and try to live by is that we're advocates for the lowest intellectually functioning 1% of the population. Because these are the people who were excluded from schools before uh, 94, 142, and 1975. These were the people who were considered too something, too autistic, too physically disabled, too behavior disordered, too something to go to school with everybody else. There were over 300,000 uh, um, in, in institutions, and men, most of them stayed at home, right? They, they functioned in few environments. They had terribly restricted social lives. The only people that interacted with them were family people, other people with disabilities, and people you give money to, right? So, so, so th that was the population, and I think that was the original TASH population. And uh, it, it certainly there's more to inclusion than the lowest intellectually functioning 1% of the population, but that's the, that's the group of people that we were primarily concerned with, right? Now, now uh, what did they have in, in, in 1970? Activity centers, for, for some of them, segregated workshops, home, they were stayed at home all day. And we said, that's not good enough. That's not good enough. See, when you started, we started to work in the Madison schools with, with kids with significant disabilities, and we followed them. We're still following them to this day, by the way, those who are alive. Uh, we followed them. And so now when, when they finished, when they finished, what, what did they do? Well, they went to a segregated workshop, a segregated activity center, or they stayed at home. We said, that's not, not good enough. So we started, and there's a years ago, there's a, a, a paper we wrote, uh, um, so the uh, uh, publication of CEC, hey, don't forget about me, uh, it said it was the, the criterion of ultimate functioning. So if, if you, you start with young kids and you stay with them throughout their lives, well, what, ultimately, where does, it, where does it lead? What do you want? What's the outcome that, that, that makes any kind of sense? And so we said that the, criterion, the criteria of ultimate functioning to live, work, and play in integrated society. So anything you do that prepares people with significant intellectual disabilities to live, work, and play in integrated society, you do. Anything you do that interferes with that, you don't do. So that became sort of a, a guiding rule for us. And, and of course, that put us smack in, con in conflict with the a um, large percentage of the population and the institutions that serve them. So now, you say, what progress have we made since 1970, 75? Well, uh, now we have schooling for all. You know, thanks. But I think if those parents in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania 
and, and Ed Martin and his group and, and, and uh, the federal government and the senators and Congress people who, who, who passed the legislation, they're their primary. You've got to thank them. When parents and lawyers and Congress people and professional, professionals get together, we, 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 you can do wonderful things. Now, each year, we're not, we're not, well, there are very few people in the country, 320 million, they're probably fewer than 25,000 people in institutions, and most of those are nursing homes so on institution grounds. We have integrated work. Every year, more and more people live in, with significant disabilities leave school and do real work in the real world. It no longer said it couldn't be done. It used to be if you couldn't do in the shelter workshop, you sat at home or did nothing. And then and, and, and people always came up with reasons why these people couldn't function in integrated society, and they're wrong, right? Now we have universities. There were no teacher training programs. As a matter of fact, CEC, uh, they did with people, but they had programs for to train teachers to work with the mentally retarded, if you will. Um, but they, but these kids were considered sub, sub trainable or to this or to that uh, for those programs. And they, those, there very few university programs that deal, dealt with severe kids with severe intellectual disabilities. All right. So now we've increased the environment. It, it warms my heart to go around the Madison or anywhere and see people with obvious disabilities on a bus working at a restaurant, in a library, just walk, walk in the streets. You couldn't see that when, when the, um, uh, the segregation is to rule the, rule the world. Right? Now, now we've, we've got the, it, even social relationships have improved. What is one of the major problems that you see in education? Okay, when you're talking about the education of kids, there, there, there are several, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, one of the major problems is uh, um, the learning and performance characteristics of the population we're talking about. I think there's a there's pervasive ignorance of or denial of the learning characteristics of the students we're talking about. For example, they're not that smart. What does that mean? They're going to learn fewer skills in a unit of time, a month, a week, a school year, a career, than everybody, than 99% of the people. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you have the things you pick to teach them. The skills you teach to teach you need to teach them are going to have to be the most important things they need to know. You can't teach them dumb stuff. You can't waste your time. You can't think to teach them something that spends this valuable time teaching them something that by the time they learn it, they're obsolete. The second characteristic of the population is the level of difficulty. I mean, you, can, you, you see some of these IEPs, and they're wonderfully exciting and stimulating. And, oh, boy, they read so beautifully. And they've, they've downloaded from all these checklists. And, oh, it's great. It's great. The problem is what they're talking about is out of the difficulty range. They're too complicated for the students of concern. They're not intellectually capable of learning them. So now you have to have to force pick an important skill. In the difficulty range, the highest part of the difficulty, the difficulty range of an individual student. Another problem. The one of the reasons you say this, that it's significantly disabled intellectually is that it takes longer to learn than everybody else. We refer to it as the number of trials to acquisition. How many trials is it going to take to teach this particular student a very important skill in her difficulty range? Well, well, let's say you say 100. Well, if you only can get in 50 before you go on to a next skill, she doesn't learn anything. So there's no accumulation. 
and this is a tremendous problem is over time is, is building the repertoire. Now, the next problem that I think is dishonored is practice. If you don't let them, if they don't practice what they know, then they forget, right? So now you have what we call vertical practice, which is classic general education for smart kids. You, you do addition, then you do subtraction, then you do multiplication, then you do, and you keep going up making things more complicated. Well, the problem with that vertical development strategy is the kid, our kids, you hit the top of their difficulty range. And then you, 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 they can count to this, but you start to counting, adding on what they have to count. They don't do it. They can't do it. So what do you do? Well, what you do is you go horizontally. You teach them to use what they know in different activities, in different environments, in, in, different, in, uh, in different environments. Right? So, so, um, so by doing that, if I teach a skill in school, I make sure they use it in a game. Make a student in a functional skill. Make sure they use it at home in some way. Right? Uh, uh, and then you build in practice and you, you, you reduce forgetting. The other major problem that's just almost, in, well, it's significantly ignored by educators is the problem of generalization. No one has ever said, you know, the more intellectually disabled you are, the better you generalize. No one ever said that. Everybody knows the more, the more disabled you are intellectually, the more problems you have generalizing. Right, so so it's senseless to teach somebody a skill in school and then require them to expect them or to hope for them to use that skill someplace else. It just doesn't work. I'm really sorry. So what you have to do is build the generalization into your instructional programs. Get a commitment from parents or friends or, or anybody, so that if I teach them this skill in school, then they're going to use it here and they're going to use it there, so they won't forget it and they don't have to worry about deficits and generalization. Another problem that's being ignored is we know we know most the well overwhelming majority of our students are imitative they can imitate the ones that can't we're, we're we'll teach them to imitate we're really good at teaching kids to imitate okay so now we got in school or in our therapy programs we teach kids to imitate so now what do we do with them well we put them with other kids who self-stimulate with other kids who can't talk, with other kids who can't move, you see? So it's crazy to spend your resources teaching imitation skills. We know how to do it, it's really, they're imitative, and then you put them with horrible models. So we want, we want to put them with the best possible language, behavior, social, work, whatever models. Well, in schools, where are the best models? They're not in special education settings. They're in the general education setting, right? We will hear more from our guest, Lou Brown, later on this season. If you would like to hear the entire unedited interview with Lou Brown, consider becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast. Follow the Think Inclusive podcast on the web at thinkinclusive.us. And tell us what you thought of the podcast via Twitter at inclusive underscore pod on Facebook or Instagram. You can also subscribe to the Think Inclusive podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or on the Anchor app. We'd love to know that you are listening. Also, a reminder that you can support the Think Inclusive podcast either through Patreon, Anchor.fm with a monthly contribution, so that we can continue to bring you in-depth interviews with thought leaders in inclusive education and community advocacy. 
On that note, thanks to Patreons Donna L., Kathleen T., and Renee J. for their continued support of our podcast. Also, a special shout out to my producer and love of my life, Brianna. She will always be number one in my book. And one more shout out to my boys. You know who you are for all the encouragement. I greatly appreciate it. Next time on the Think Inclusive podcast. It's a major problem. If you tell me that a child with an intellectual disability in California will spend 80% of their K through 12 experience only with other children with disabilities, that's a problem. Thanks for your time and attention. See you next time. This has been a production of Think Inclusive LLC. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.